Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back, Reluctant Preppers. We're glad to have our returning guest tonight, Matt from Silver Fortune, is here with us for a second time here on Reluctant Preppers. Matt, thank you for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I had a great time last time, and I think we're going to have some uh, great discussions in this uh, this interview today. It's been an eventful a couple of months since we spoke last, and uh, your last interview here was well-received by our viewers, so we're, they're eager for you to come back on. We've had a lot of volatility around the world in hot spots. Uh, people sometimes refer to them as emerging market economies, that sort of thing, but they certainly are points of potential uh, upset in the system and, and sort of vectors of change. Can you kind of give us what you think are some of the most important uh, examples that we need to be paying attention to and why they're significant to our future, even though they may seem half a world away. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, for the last week or two, um, the, the spotlight has, to some extent, been taken off of emerging markets. And, and when I say emerging markets, you know, the countries at the top of the list right now, the important ones, I should say, they're all important. But, but you know, Turkey, uh, Brazil, Argentina, um, South Africa, and, and there's some other ones that are slowly being added to that list, uh, countries like India, Indonesia, and there's other ones that potentially still could be added in the future, countries like Poland or Mexico. Um, th these emerging markets, they haven't had as bad of the uh, last couple of weeks as, as well, the, the weeks or months before that. Um, and, and that's largely due to, to the, uh, the, the U.S. dollar index kind of taking a breather in terms of, of its strength. Um, but with that being said, you know, we are still seeing a lot of weakness in these economies and their currencies, their, their, their markets, bond markets, stock markets, you name it. Um, they're, they're really suffering. Even, even India, which is, is certainly in a better position than a lot of those countries um, right now, that the Indian rupee is, uh, which is a relatively large uh, currency compared to, say, say, maybe like the Argentine peso, um, it's, you know, it, it's right around record lows right now. And so this emerging market crisis, I think, is... It's far from over. I, we talked about this in the last discussion, the, the, some of the big uh, reasons that this crisis exists in the first place. I mean, part of it is these countries, their economies taking on too much debt in foreign currencies, oftentimes U.S. dollars or euros in, in, some, in the case of some countries that are uh, you know, geographically located near the eurozone, such as Turkey. Um, that's, that's a big part of it. But, but the reason that it's gotten so much worse, that, that, that debt is actually starting to matter, is oh, well, the Fed tightening as, as well as the U.S. government uh, issuing more and more debt, more and more bonds. And those two things, I mean, we, we saw the Fed tighten today and we know that the U.S. government is not going to stop taking on more and more debt anytime soon. Um, those things haven't changed. And so I don't think we've seen the last of this emerging market crisis. We've just kind of seen it kind of be removed from the, the daily or the weekly news cycle or financial news cycle for the time being, I think it's going to get much worse. And, and you know, to, to answer that question, why does this matter? Why does what's going on in Argentina or Brazil or Turkey or eventually India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Mexico, why does that matter in the United States? Well, you know, as I said, a lot of these countries, especially at the corporate level, companies have taken out loans in foreign currencies. Again, oftentimes U.S. dollar or euro, which for the time being are relatively stable currencies. Okay, 
um, for for years, a, a lot of, of, of corporations, they basically made a large bet. I mean, they needed to take out debt, and sometimes it's easier to get foreign currency uh, lending or, or, or funding through foreign currency debt. Um, but they're kind of betting, in a sense, that the U.S. dollar would not uh, grow in, in strength, that it wasn't going to have a lot of strength, that it wasn't going to um, at least have the strength that we've seen uh, recently. Well, it has. Again, going back to the Fed tightening the, the U.S. government policy. So the dollar has had this strength, and all of a sudden, these debts that they owe are a lot harder to pay because it's in a stronger currency. Now, of course, who do they owe those debts to? Well, in the case of, uh, of a country like Turkey, um, they owe them to, to uh, banks, uh, these corporations owe the money to banks in, in places like the United States, Spain, other um, very vulnerable, you know, banks within very vulnerable European economies. And the same goes for, for all these other emerging markets. When they're taking on this debt in a foreign currency, it oftentimes is not being done through a domestic bank. It's being done through a foreign bank, oftentimes a U.S. bank or European bank. And so, you know, eventually, if, if you have a country like Turkey or Argentina that's gone a massive, undergone a, a massive currency depreciation in the last couple of months, and all of a sudden you have these corporations that own or owe uh, billions and billions of dollars in debt to these banks, if they suddenly can no longer make those payments, if they default on that, who's really going to pay the price? I mean, those economies certainly will, but but imagine what it's going to do to the banks, right? And so that's how it kind of uh, affects us. I mean, never mind just economic weakness. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But the defaults on, on that debt, um, that affects our banking system and, and, and in turn our whole financial system, our markets and our economy. Now, the other piece of it is also just economic weakness in these foreign uh, countries. You know, I talked about this in a video today. You know, people have this sense that somehow the United States today can be some sort of a, a, a shining beacon of economic strength in a in a, a, a sea of, of countries that are just drowning in, in debt and mm -hmm. in poor economic growth and et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but what I basically said in that video is that, no, I mean, th that whole idea that we can be an, a beacon of economic growth, um, that's an idea taken from, from like the post-World War II era, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. But of course, back then, the U.S. was in a relatively strong position. We were one of the few, probably the, the only uh, considerably sized economy that left that war unscathed. You had the UK, you had France, almost all of Europe, honestly. You had the Soviet Union, you had China, um, the, the Koreas, of course, we had the Korean War shortly after, Japan, all the Philippines, you can go on and on. All of these major economies were were bombed, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they, they had a war that was fought on their land in the United States. For the most part, we didn't have to deal with that. Today is a totally different story. Our economy is just as rotten to the core as European economies, as emerging market economies. We have a ton of debt. We have a, a very bleak demographic situation in the sense that our population is getting older and older and, and you know less productive. We, we have um, you know uh, inflation that is well outpacing wage growth. We have all these problems. It's just not the case that we can somehow avoid that same economic weakness that we are soon going to see in all of these uh, emerging markets. So what you're saying, it sounds like if I can summarize that and tell me what I'm missing is, first of all, we have to pay attention to these emerging markets because they can be the stone that gets pulled out underneath uh, one of these banks that all these banks are connected and it can start a, a domino effect and so what contagion can spread from a, what appears to be a smaller distant starting point. That's number one. And number two, they is us. What we see them, they may be just a little bit further down the, 
whether you want to call it the learning curve or the decay curve or whatever, they may be closer to the fringe, but we're in uh, not much better shape uh, in some ways than they are, some, subject to some of the same um, structural uh, weaknesses. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an ex- excellent way of summing it up. I mean, basically, contagions, like you said, they don't start from the center. I mean, the, the 2008 crisis did not begin... Uh, in, in, in the heart of the money markets or something like that. No, it started on the fringe. It started with things like, like the subprime market, which mm-hmm. was, was just a small segment of, of the whole picture, and yet it spread. And, and when you have – and this is a, a topic for a whole other video um, – but, but when you have a, a system that is so highly leveraged and, and so reliant on, on derivatives, it doesn't take a whole lot of, of defaults, of, of somebody rocking the boat – for it to turn into a, a full-blown contagion. Now, I don't know if that's for sure going to happen as a result of this emerging market crisis. Uh, people say that that governments can step in and, and stop something like that from from really spreading, and, and they're not entirely wrong, you know, over the short term. Um, but uh, the the banking contagion is one thing, but but the economic weakness spreading into other countries kind of the second point. Um, that is is not something you can necessarily fix with with a couple hundred billion dollars worth of IMF bailouts or, or something along those lines. Wanted to whet the viewers' appetite. Uh, we just recently did a reluctant preppers road trip to some emerging market countries, uh, including Italy and Greece and Montenegro, were within the EU zone, and then also Croatia, which is outside the where they don't have the the euro as their currency. And interviewed quite a few people in different uh, walks of life there about how things are affecting them politically and economically. So people can look forward to us sharing that in a travel blog coming up soon. And uh, in passing, you you mentioned the the uh, Fed uh, turning to a tightening bias, and if you could uh, give us your view of why that's significant, whether you think it's actually real or is that just window dressing uh, for for posturing reasons, or what do you think the real effects of that are going to play out to be? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I mean the Fed they they raised their interest rates once again today. Uh, I think this is the eighth rate hike since uh, Janet Yellen raised rates for the first time. Since the Great Recession in 2015, so eight rate hikes now, we're up to around 2% for the Fed funds rate. Um, it, it, you know, it's it, Jerome Powell has thus far kind of been a man of his word in the in his his nine eight month tenure, however long he's he's been the Fed chair now. Um, he has tightened. He's he's stayed the course on this. He's certainly been much more hawkish than I think Janet Yellen would have been. Um, do I think um, the Fed is for real with this tightening? You know, that's that's hard for me to answer. I mean. Because honestly, I'd need to see inside the mind of of, of the Fed chairman and and, and all the uh, you know voting members. Um, you know, we we can come up with a, a couple of different possibilities. Either a, you know, Jerome Powell and others are are entirely naive. You know, I was I was watching this this uh, or I was listening to this interview actually on on NPR. Yes, I, I listen to NPR from time to time. And and there's this guy on there. He's there. Um, He's their market guy. He's their economy guy, mm-hmm. and, and he's a bit of a cheerleader for the Fed. And you know, he he would fit in well on like the CNBC. He just cheers on the markets a lot of days, and and, and the Fed, and etc. But he was actually interviewing uh, Jerome Powell and and talking about this. And, and and I was listening to Jerome Powell, and it I, I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, are you intentionally deceiving us and saying this, or are you just uh, so so caught up in in infatuated with your own your your own position your own power that you just are blind to this but basically what he was saying was uh the, the, you know he uh, kai had asked him you know why why are you continuing on this tightening uh cycle and he basically said 
Well, you know, we need to keep hiking interest rates because, uh, you know, some different data has shown us that the U.S. economy is overheating and, and we're running the risk of bubbles forming and imbalances forming. And I'm like, mm. are, you, are you kidding me? Like, we, we, we've been in a bubble economy for a long time. You have asset bubbles in the stock market by, by many metrics around all time highs, certainly around dot com bubble highs, 1929 highs. You have the real estate market, which might not be in as big of a bubble, especially with millennials such as myself, uh, just not having the means to, to purchase houses when when past generations have, okay, but still in a bubble, especially certain markets. Then you have debt bubbles, which have also been fueled by the Fed's past policy. You you have the, the student loan bubble, you have auto, credit card, mortgage, uh, you, you have uh, kind of the biggest bubble of them all, perhaps. Uh, well, you have corporate debt, but you also have the, the biggest one of them all, the, the sovereign debt bubble. Mm -hmm. um, these imbalances, these bubbles are already here, and he's trying to prevent them from, from forming. Um, again, he either he's naive, or he's he's intentionally deceiving us. That's the way I see it, and and, and they know the ultimate, um, you know, th that they already know the the ultimate uh, implications of their actions right now. This tightening cycle, and so yeah, I couldn't say for sure exactly what they're 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 um, what they're exactly trying to do. But looking at the facts, uh, it's it's almost always the case that the Fed creates bubbles through keeping their policy too loose for too long. That's what they did following two, 2008, kept interest rates too low for too long. They did their quantitative easing, okay? And then they go ahead and tighten too quickly for too long, you know, tighten mm -hmm. too much. And, and they pop the bubbles that they formed. Another crisis happens and they swoop in and save the dam. It's, it's uh, you know, when you look at the, the long-term trend here, it's it's not hard to see that. And, and I think, you know, if, if I can keep going here on this on this rant here about the Fed, um, I think their, their current path right now, most people, and, and when I say most people, I'm not talking about you and I, but I'm talking about people, um, maybe analysts, kind of more mainstream establishment traders, uh, CBC people, Kai Rizdal, et cetera. Um, they're, they're expecting the Fed to, well, I don't know, keep their word and, and continue raising interest rates you know, through 2019, even into 2020. They're going to continue to unwind their balance sheet until it's, you know, quote unquote, normalized. That's, that's probably another... $2 trillion unwind from where it is right now. I don't know exactly what they'll consider normalized, but they, they, they take them at their word and they think that they'll actually follow through on this. Um, I think the reality of the situation is that, you know, for a long time now, people have been kind of predicting the, the economy is going to, to collapse or it's going to go down the drain or whatever because of high debt and, and whatever. But I think things like high debt and whatnot are beginning to matter as interest rates start to rise. And I think the Fed is kind of at the center of this. And 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 I honestly think that the Fed is not going to be able to follow through with their with their plan of raising interest rates through 2019 into 2020. And they're not going to be able to normalize their balance sheet. I think that their pause in this tightening and, and eventual reversal back into a loosening policy, it's going to happen a lot sooner than many people anticipate. I couldn't tell you exactly when, but but heading into 2019, certainly uh, certainly after the midterms, looks like it could be a, a very ripe time for the markets to drop. Um, this this emerging market crisis probably will have worsened by then. You have some other potential uh, gray swans because we can talk about them. You know how many how much can you talk about black swans? They're supposed to be you know unexpected, but but there's plenty of other things that that are on the horizon that could cause a catalyst for this to happen. Uh, the, the Fed is not just going to spontaneously uh, reverse years worth of policy. They need, they need a catalyst, a stock market crash, a financial crisis. Um, and I think, I think you know, the next, 
certainly the next 12 months are very looking very ripe for that. And, and you know, it happening in the next 12 months, I think, would ca- catch a lot of people off guard uh, in the sense that they expect the Fed to, you know, the, this party to, to go on for at least a couple more years. Um, but, you know, as often is the case, people don't realize we're in a recession or a depression until it's until it's too late. <laughs> that's that's a fact of the matter. That's what happened in 2008 um, and, and many other times throughout history. And I think it's going to happen uh, this time around as well. Still regarding the Fed tightening, some people have said that the real reason, and if you could address that for a moment, you mentioned uh, it's it's a comical to hear them say we're gonna we're gonna tighten now because the economy is showing such signs of strength. We need to prevent bubbles because we've been in a bubble for a long time of, of multiple kinds. But what about the uh, comment that some people have made that the real reason the Fed has to do get the the needle off of zero interest is because they need some ammunition to be able to prepare for the next recession when they're going to have to or the worsening of the recession when they're going to have to be able to drop again because if it's already if they're already at zero when the the economy needs a juice then there's nowhere to go uh, down from there oh yeah absolutely i think that's a part of it as well you know it also i think has to do with um you know as important as their policy is and and the interest rate changes and their balance sheet unwind uh they also have to kind of keep up appearances they have to kind of push the the whole uh we, we have a strong robust economy um narrative have narrative correct thank you uh out there as well and i think that's that's very important for market psychology as well that's very important for for financial conditions within the market if we were in 2018 now and they still hadn't raised interest rates and and they still hadn't begun their balance sheet unwind i think the market probably would have called their bluff by now they had they had to start at some point and 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 you're you're correct uh, your viewers are correct in saying that yeah they need some some room to to breathe but but what what's interesting about this is you know if if you look at the fed funds rate and let's say 2006 you know before the the financial crisis this was um shortly after i think uh greenspan had had left office as Fed chairman, Bernanke was in, he got a couple rate hikes in before they paused. Um, I don't know exactly, I don't have it right in front of me, but I, I wanna say the Fed funds rate was around five or 6%. There's no way we're gonna get that high this time around. Mm-hmm. And so you gotta think that if this crisis is gonna be just as bad, if not worse, the Fed's gonna need to respond in kind or, or even more um, more radically than, than they did last time. And so, you know, negative interest rates, that could be on the horizon. Certainly, much much more QE than they did last time. And of course, there, there's other um, there's other tools that they can use as well. Uh, they they can fund the government directly. Let's never mind them buying bonds. Let's just have them fund the government directly. You don't need to worry about interest rates lending all of that through the government. They can uh, begin helicopter money policies, where which I think would be extremely popular over the short term. They they quite literally not literally drop the whole idea behind helicopter money. I think it was Milton Friedman that that coined the term. Mm. Um, he it's it's a helicopter going over a city and dropping money out, right? It, bringing money directly to the people rather than just corporations or whatever. I don't think it'd be a lot in the whole scheme of things. Corporations absolutely would benefit more from their policy, but I think it'd be popular over the short term. It's also going to be inflationary. That's the type of things that the Fed is, I think, going to have to do this next time around. Um, they have built themselves somewhat of a cushion, but it's not nearly uh, large enough for, for, I think, the crisis that they're eventually going to face. If we could turn our attention now to the precious metals markets, a number of our viewers are very interested in reducing their risk to systemic exposure to risk uh, of our fiat currency system by having uh, precious metals uh, in their in their own possession 
and uh, all that that represents as far as a potential store of value and, and a hedge against crisis. But recently, coming out of a, like a two-year uh, pennant or flag formation of the price market, there was a, there was a pretty significant breakout to the downside for silver, and there's been a significant amount of questions on people's minds as far as where is there a floor underneath silver? People said that it was already under the cost of production for many producers when it's in the uh, you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollar range, uh, and yet it seems that there's uh, weakness uh, ahead, or at least we're in the middle of that right now. Do you believe that there is a real floor under the silver price, and if so, where and why? Yeah, well, I, first of all, you're absolutely right. Your views are absolutely right in saying that it's it's a way to. Uh, protect themselves, get out of this fiat system. But also, I mean, if you look around in terms of investments, in terms of assets to own, where to put your money, you know, if you are, I guess, of the same mind of, of I guess, you or I, you know, some in this alternative financial uh, uh, media or community, uh, it's it's hard to find something that's not overvalued. And so so never mind just the dollar and fiat currency being overvalued, but but stocks, real estate, et cetera, they're overvalued as well. But but yeah, talking about the floor uh, in in the price of silver, um, you know, you're, you're you're correct in saying that there are, I think, some miners that are under the cost of production now, which doesn't mean that they're immediately going to close up shop immediately. That's, that's expensive to do that. And so they're going to operate under the cost of production for a limited amount of time. Now, in the whole scheme of things, I don't think it's, it's it, we're not talking 20% of production, 50% or anything like that. No, it's, it's a small amount. But with commodities, oftentimes the case is that, you know, the price, well, uh, the price is set by the paper markets. But, you know, in, in an ideal world, the price is set by the, uh, the last ounce or the last barrel of oil, uh, the, the last bushel of wheat that is sold. Meaning if we relate this to the oil market, you have a lot of countries that are producing well under the price of oil right now. You have Saudi Arabia, et cetera. But the price is going to be much closer to the most expensive producers, whoever those are on the oil market. Same thing goes for silver. There's primary silver miners out there right now that as they close down, well, that's going to be, that's going to put an upward pressure on the price of silver because, uh, a small amount of supply, even if it's just 1%, 2%, 3% taken off the market, is going to affect the price, right? The price isn't just going to be able to stay low. Now, now talking about this floor, um, yeah, my thought on that, I see this heading in two different ways, I guess, over the next uh, six months. First of all, I think, you know, through the election, we could continue to see some choppiness in the markets. I don't, I, I'm not extremely bearish or bullish though on silver. When people talk about $12 silver, $10 silver. I am still highly doubtful of that. With that being said, in October or something like that, we could see silver back under $14 for a brief amount of time, but, but $13.50, $13, I think unlikely. But I do think we're going to see some dollar strength, some future dollar strength that would make that possible. With that being said, I think there's also some other things that will keep it from falling even more. There's the seasonality in the price of silver in the sense that around this time of year, it tends to go up, Okay. Um, there is uh, the potential for for things like a war in Syria. There's there's the election, which are going to cause some volatility and a bit of a fear trade in, excuse me, into precious metals. And so, yeah, you're gonna, I think you're gonna see some choppiness, but I don't think you're gonna see a whole lot of lows until after the election. And that, and this is an if. This is where I see kind of two different scenarios playing out. You know, if the elections come and 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 um, Democrats have themselves a, a good day at the polls. And they are able to uh, maybe not they don't even need to regain the House or the Senate, but let's say they they make it close 
they it's at the end of the day it's clear that they have won back some seats uh, for their party then i think we're going to see some volatility we're going to see the markets kind of upset about that and i think we can say at that point that it's probably likely that the the low will be in for silver and gold at that point um i, I just see i i just see it, it it going up after that um we, we could see some, some short periods of high dollar strength and some sort of a crisis. We could see some weakness in the precious metals like we have in the past. Uh, but but other than that, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of lows. Now, the other scenario here is that Republicans uh, have a good showing at the polls. They maintain control of the House, of the Senate. This whole mantra of, of great economic growth and everything under the Trump presidency continues for a little bit longer. And we head into December, which over the last couple of years at least, has been a very poor month for silver and gold. And during that time, we could see new lows. We could see 1350, we could see 13 for a short period of time. But of course, January, end of December, February, uh, March, those tend to be strong months for precious metals. And so I think they're going to rebound back up. So, you know, I guess my, my, this is my thought on it is that, you know, the lows that we saw a, a couple weeks ago when, when silver briefly dropped under $14 and a little bit before that, a couple weeks before that, we saw gold, I think around 1165. Um, those are going to be pretty close to the lows. I, I don't think we're going to go a whole lot lower than that because, uh, I, I, I just don't see us being 12 months or 24 months away from from a, a crisis or, or from the Fed loosening their policy again. And that's really the big signal that I'm looking for, for, for a bull market to run and return in precious metals, a catalyst from the Federal Reserve. There's other, there's plenty of other catalysts, black swan type things, but that's one that I think we can say w with some amount of um, confidence, it's, it's going to happen inevitably. And that's going to lead to a very weak dollar it's going to lead to a lot of demand for precious metals, especially silver, which I think is much more sensitive to that type of demand. And, and it's going to be a, another run up. It's just a matter of when. And if it's another 12 months, 24 months, and I'm totally off base, then then so be it. You, me, our, our viewers, we will have a little bit longer to to, uh, to to purchase these metals at a very low price. But again, same story with the Fed. I think it's going to come a lot sooner than, than what many, I guess, establishment individuals uh, believe. I appreciate you giving us the, sort of that balanced uh, multiple scenario outlook. And uh, I forgot to mention this in the beginning, folks. It is Wednesday, September 26, 2018. We're talking with Matt from Silver Fortune. Matt, could you talk to people just briefly about where they can find you online and what kind of resources you provide there? Yeah, I'm on YouTube. I'm also actually uh, on, on podcasts, just about every podca podcast platform out there now, iTunes, uh android um spotify pocket cast there's some other ones out there um but but you know my my main home is here on the youtube and and you know as as the name of my channel would suggest i, I do have a heavy focus on silver and precious metals but doesn't mean I can talk about them every single day on my channel. So I do talk about a lot of other other topics that I'm passionate about, including, you know, the economy. You heard it, the monetary policy, Fed policy, um, stock markets, bond markets. Uh, I, I document a lot about about the um, things like uh, that, that are just kind of, uh, I don't know, going wrong in our in our. Um, society today in terms of uh, growing wealth gaps and, and what's the real cause of that? What's, what are some solutions to that? Or or the, the coming pension crisis, on and on. Um, it, it might come off as a bit doomy gloomy, which I don't think a lot of your viewers would mind in the first place. But but I think it's it's a, it's a lot of truth that, that uh, needs to be spread out there. So uh, Silver Fortune on YouTube and on different podcast platforms, that's uh, primarily where you guys are going to find me. 
Well, Matt, thank you once again for joining us here this second time on Reluctant Preppers. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about some of those other major topics that you've broached there because those are also of significant concern to our viewers. So thanks once again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for having me on today.